0: This is Spacetime Series 20, Episode 85, for broadcast on the 1st of November, 2017. Coming up on Spacetime, the first confirmed interstellar visitor to our solar system, asteroid Itokawa's violent past, and the missing link in science's understanding of planetary formation. All that and more coming up on Spacetime.
1: Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary.
0: Astronomers have confirmed their first interstellar visitor to our solar system. The 400 metre wide newly discovered asteroid or comet, which has been designated A2017U1, is moving incredibly fast. Astronomers are urgently working to point telescopes around the world and in space at this notable object. Once these data are obtained and analysed, astronomers will know more about the origins and possible composition of the new visitor. A-2017 U-1 was discovered on October the 19th by the University of Hawaii's Pan-STARRS-1 telescope during NASA's search for NEOs or near-Earth objects which could pose a threat to our planet. Astronomers have been waiting for this day for decades. They've long theorised that such objects exist, that is asteroids or comets moving around between the stars in interstellar space and occasionally passing through the solar system. But this is the first such detection. Dr. Rob Work from the University of Hawaii's Institute for Astronomy was the first to identify the object and submit it to the Minor Planet Center. He subsequently searched the PanSTARRS image archive database and consequently found it in images taken the previous night. However, it hadn't been identified by moving object processing. Work immediately realized that this was somewhat of an unusual object. Its motion couldn't be explained using either normal solar system asteroid or comet orbital data. Work then contacted fellow astronomer Marco Michelli, who had had the same realisation using his own follow-up images taken at the European Space Agency's telescope on Tenerife in the Canary Islands. The combined data allowed scientists to determine that this object must have come from beyond the solar system. David Farnasheir from NASA's Center for Near-Earth Object Studies at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, describes the object as having the most extreme orbit he's ever seen. The NASA team plotted the object's current trajectory, determining that it came from the direction of the constellation Lyra, cruising through interstellar space at 25.5 kilometers per second. The object approached our solar system from almost directly above the ecliptic, the orbital plane upon which the planets and most asteroids orbit the Sun. This means it didn't have any close encounters with the eight major planets during its plunge towards the Sun. On September 2nd, it crossed under the ecliptic just inside Mercury's orbit and then made its closest approach to the Sun on September 9. Pulled by the Sun's gravity, the object made a hairpin turn under our solar system, passing the Earth's orbit on October 14 at a distance of about 24 million kilometres. That's about 60 times the distance between the Earth and Moon. Its trajectory and speed mean it's now on its way out of the solar system and it won't be coming back. It's now shot back up past the plane of the planets and is travelling at some 44 kilometres per second with respect to the Sun speeding towards the constellation Pegasus. Astronomers have long suspected that these objects should exist because during the process of planetary formation, a lot of material should be ejected from planetary systems. What's most surprising is that astronomers have never seen interstellar objects pass through the solar system before. That's of course assuming that all long-duration comets from the Oort cloud had indeed originated within our solar system. Matt Holman is the director of the Minor Planet Centre in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's where all observations of small bodies in our solar system, and now I guess just those passing through as well, are collected. Holman says this discovery demonstrates the great scientific value of continuous wide-field surveys of the sky, coupled with intense follow-up observations, to find things scientists wouldn't otherwise know are there. And one more important point, since this is the first object of its type ever discovered, rules for naming this type of object will need to be established by the International Astronomical Union. It'll be interesting to see what they decide. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Samples brought back to Earth from the asteroid Itokawa indicate the 500-metre-wide space rock has had a violent history. The samples were collected by Japan's Hayabusa spacecraft in 2005. The findings are based on two tiny grains of asteroidal samples studied by scientists from Perth's Curtin University. Hayabusa was launched on May 9, 2003, rendezvousing with the asteroid Itokawa in mid-September 2005. The mission studied the asteroid's shape, its rotation, its topography, color, composition, density and its evolution. In November 2005, Hayabusa touched down on the asteroid surface, collecting tiny samples of asteroidal material which were then returned to Earth. The sample collection method didn't go quite as well as expected. Still some 1,500 asteroid dust particles, most smaller than the diameter of a human hair, were successfully collected. The sample return capsule returned to Earth on July 13, 2010, parachuting down into the warmer rocket range in outback South Australia. The study's lead author, Curtin University Associate Professor Fred Jordan, says the close-up images of Itakawa taken by Hayabusa shows that the peanut-shaped asteroid resembles a rubble pile of boulders and dust more than solid rock. It's thought Itakawa was part of a much larger asteroid that was destroyed by a collision with another asteroid. The chipped off remnants then recombined into a gravitationally bound rubble pile. Jordan and colleagues used Argon-Argon dating to investigate when impact events happened on Itakawa, offering a glimpse into the asteroid's impact history. The extremely small size of the grain samples provided scientists with significant challenges. The authors used Curtin University's Noble Gas Mass Spectrometer, which was specially customised for extraterrestrial samples. This allowed them to measure and analyse tiny amounts of gas from the two available fragments of Itakawa. They found one particle appeared to be about 4.6 billion years old, the same age as most chondrite asteroid samples, as well as the solar system itself. The other particle was more interesting. It was impact shocked, indicating a major collision about 2.4 billion years ago, which had chipped it a cow off a larger parent body. According to these results in a series of models, Jordan and colleagues believe asteroids don't always break up due to a single cataclysmic impact. Instead, They can internally fragment and fracture due to medium-sized collisions that are constantly battering large asteroids until eventually they finally shatter from impact. The results tell researchers that Itokawa was already broken and had reassembled into a rubble pile about 2.4 billion years ago, a finding that shows that rubble pile asteroids can survive much longer in this state than previously thought. Jordan says that will be due to their cushion-like nature caused by the abundance of dust between the boulders which make up the asteroid. He says the research has resulted in some fascinating conclusions.
1: Back in 2013, if I remember correctly, we put a proposal and we were granted two particles. That was great because the technique that we're going to use on them when we put the proposal, we said we're going to destroy those particles. So the people over there were like, okay, yeah, well, let, let's have a try. What we're doing is we're dating the particles. We give them an age. Uh, that's what we were interested in. So why we care about their age? Because people have figured out that Itokawa is not a primary asteroid. It's a rubble pile. So it comes from the destruction of a previously much bigger asteroid. So people think more than 20 kilometers or something like that. So we want to know when what uh, this, this mega impact that caused the destruction happened. So we get those two particles and we put them in a machine called uh, SEM, so secondary backscatter electron. And the amazing we got out of them was really interesting because they showed that the particle, at least one of them, was completely deformed, so it's been shocked by an asteroid, if you want. But the other one was completely unshocked. So each time you analyze a particle, it gives a different story, and that's very important. So you just can't mix particles together. You get to study each of them independently. So analytically speaking, it's very challenging for the machine we have, because those particles are smaller than the width of a human hair. They are about like 100 microns, and I think the smaller we get, was, uh, 60 microns, that is really, really challenging. So we had uh, in 2012 a new instrument, a noble gas machine that could measure the argon-argon age of samples, but much better than before. So we said, let's give it a crack. Uh, let's see if those particles can measure the age. And in fact, it worked. So we got two different information. The particle that was not shocked was about the same age as the you know normal chondrite, 4.5 billion or something like that. So it tells us nothing happened to it. The other one, the one that I was shocked, that was interesting because we got an age of 2.3 billion years, much younger, and uh, nothing associated with the primary primary state of the asteroid. So, what do we think? It recorded, it's an impact. Now, are you are going to tell me, oh, okay, that's the impact that breaks apart the asteroid. No, we don't know that. We can't be sure. But what we know is that the particle must have been at the surface to record this impact. So if you want, Itokawa was already formed at this age because it must be close to the surface. We did a series of modeling based on diffusion of argon in a grain and uh, based on porosity and it really tells us, look, Itokawa at this age was already formed. So what we obtain is an age uh, for a minimum age for the formation of Hitokawa. So 2.3 or older. So that's what we got out of it.
0: And how do you carry out such an argon-argon test? What, what are the processes involved? Now, a lot of people,
1: the way they carry the analysis is the particle is embedded in epoxy. So that's easy. You just handle the epoxy plug. It's big. You can carry it in your hand, no problem. But what we had to do was to extract the particle from those epoxy plugs and put them in an irradiation disk. We send the material to be irradiated in the core of the nuclear reactor. And when it comes back, we can analyze it with laser and we degas the particle with the laser. We eat it up, if you want, and we measure the, the gas inside the particle but that was extremely challenging and nerve-breaking as you can imagine because you know the JAXA trusts you with the the only particle ever brought back from an asteroid and you can't really screw up right so you get to handle those tiny particles with tiny needles and put them in the disk and uh, so we were three in my lab and uh, we carried some tests on some dummy particle if you want so to see who was we had the steadier end and who can do it so there was me and two of my technicians so two guys us we tried we made a mess out of the the dummy stuff and uh, my technician she's a very nice lady and uh, she was doing such a fine job in fact obviously she's an artist she's painting and stuff like that (gasps) the precision she did the stuff that was like hey you know what you're going to do it so yep, she did it, and obviously she didn't lose any of the particle that That was almost art, yeah, because that's really, really art.
0: Working with really tiny samples could well be the way to go in the future. Micrometeorite samples from roof gutters. These are micrometeorites that are constantly falling down onto the Earth all the time, and they just land in the roof gutters, and you can collect them from there. You don't even know they're micrometeorites, it's just dust, but when you study them, you realise they're micrometeorites, and you can find out all sorts of things from them. I think it is, because... Like, like i said that the, for this asteroid every single grain tell a different story so if you
1: go there you just sample a rock like a piece of rock okay so you're going to learn the story of these rocks but the grain they come from all all around the asteroid if you want it's detrital grain so if you analyze 100 of them you get a much broader spec of the story of the asteroid rather than uh, just a single chunk of rock so i think for the future mission That's something I'm gonna look for, right? Rather than rocks, I'm interested by the small grains. I think they have so much to say about the history of the asteroid. So we did two and now we're doing four more. We, at the moment, we're analysing them for imaging and stuff. And they look different, again, some different stuff. So, yeah, really excited about what's going to come out
0: of that. And Japan have another mission to a, another asteroid on the way too. Yeah, you
1: bet. <laughs> I, I have my eyes on that, and I'm working closely now with people in Japan. So nothing official, but I'm really hoping that I'm going to be on board for the first batch of samples that's going to come back because we really proved that the instrument we have, the people we have, we can really deliver some really solid data. Data. So uh, yeah, I have my eyes on that definitely.
0: It must be interesting working at Curtin University. You have some of the oldest rocks in the world there. Yeah, coming from Jack Hills.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. The Yeah, yeah. So people what have did they, what they've done is they analysed the zircon and turns out they are 4.4. Mm-hmm billion years old, almost as old as the planet itself. So that's a sort of, uh, yeah, the mini museum we have at the university, when people visit, we show that, obviously.
0: The only other places <laughs> like there's one in South Africa and I think there's one in Hudson Bay in Canada, in Quebec. You're just as old. Yeah, but we still have the
1: oldest. So <laughs> all around the world, scientists come here and they just want to study this one because they've got, uh, yeah, the oldest here that's it. So other old rock elsewhere, but we get the oldest. We get the monopole still.
0: That's associated Professor Fred Jordan from Curtin University. I'm Stuart Gary. you're listening to Space Time. Scientists have confirmed that planets are created by small particles coming together over time to form progressively larger and larger bodies. The findings, reported in the Journal of the Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, provide an important missing link in science's understanding of how planets are formed. The missing piece of the puzzle was discovered by the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission to the comet 67P sheremov gerasimenko A key component of Rosetta's mission was to determine how comet 67P formed 4.6 billion years ago during the solar system's birth. The study's lead author, Professor Jürgen Blum from the Technical University in Braunschweig, Germany, says there have been many proposals to explain planetary formation. But the observations from Rosetta show that there's only one way that Comet 67P could have evolved. You see, Comet 67P consists of dust pebbles ranging between millimetres and centimetres in size. Dust pebbles are planetary building blocks formed in the solar nebula by sticking collisions between dust and ice particles. The solar nebula is a rotating disk of gas and dust, out of which the Sun and its solar system formed 4.6 billion years ago. These dust pebbles are concentrated so strongly by an instability in the solar nebula that their joint gravitational force ultimately leads to a gravitational collapse. Although it sounds very dramatic, it's actually a very gentle process, in which the dust agglomerates are not destroyed, but are combined into larger and larger bodies with an even greater gravitational attraction. This continuous accumulation of dust agglomerates into a coherent body is virtually the birth of the comet. Now, due to the relatively small mass of Comet 67P, remember it's only about 5 kilometers wide, the pebbles managed to survive intact until now, allowing scientists to confirm the hypothesis for the first time. In fact, the pebble collapse formation model can explain many observed properties of Comet 67P, for instance its high porosity and how much gas appears to be escaping from its insides. Bloom says this process forms the missing link between the well-established formation of dust pebbles and the gravitational accretion of planetesimals into planets. Scientists have pondered over this process for years. Rosetta is the first spacecraft to orbit a comet and the first to try and send a lander down to the comet's surface. Understanding the evolution of our solar system and its planets was one of the main objectives of the Rosetta mission. Bloom says this confirmation means that all phases of the planetary formation model have now been established. You're listening to Space Time, I'm Stuart Gary. Existing models on dark matter claim that the super dense cores of the largest galaxy clusters contain massive galaxies with so much dark matter that they can never move. The problem is new observations have shown that this density is much smaller than predicted and that galaxies at the centers of these clusters do move, or at least they wobble. Galaxy clusters are the largest known structures in the universe. Each cluster can contain thousands of galaxies and hot gas. But more importantly, they contain this mysterious substance called dark matter which accounts for some 27% of all the matter and energy in the universe. Everything we see in the universe, the stuff made up of atoms, from galaxies and stars through to planets and cars and trees and houses and people, combined we call all this stuff baryonic matter. But it makes up only 20% of all the material in the universe. The other 80% is dark matter. We can't see it, but we know it's there because we can see its gravitational effect on normal matter. And as far as we know, gravity is the only way dark matter interacts with normal matter. So understanding dark matter is really important to understanding the universe. As well as containing huge amounts of dark matter, every galaxy cluster contains a central galaxy that is brighter and more massive than all the other galaxies in the cluster. This one central galaxy is simply referred to by astronomers as the brightest cluster galaxy, or BCG. Recent evidence from simulations of exotic non-standard dark matter shows that these brightest cluster galaxies actually continue to wobble long after the overall galaxy cluster is relaxed. This is the residual wobbling caused by the massive merging of galaxy clusters. The authors compare their observations of 10 galaxy clusters to the predictions of the Brahmas suite of cosmological hydrodynamical simulations finding the two didn't match. According to the standard model of dark matter, the cold dark matter hypothesis, this wobbling shouldn't exist because the enormous density of dark matter keeps the central galaxy, the BCG, tightly bound at the centre of the galaxy cluster. This mismatch between what's supposed to happen and what the actual observations show does happen suggests the existence of as-yet-unknown physics that haven't been accounted for. The galaxy clusters that the astronomers studied also act as strong gravitational lenses. In fact, they're so massive they warp space-time sufficiently to distort light passing through them like a lens. It's this quality which can be used to map dark matter, working out where the centre is and then observing how the brightest cluster galaxy wobbles around the centre. The study's lead author, David Harvey, from EPFL's Laboratory of Astrophysics, says brightest cluster galaxies tend to slosh around at the bottom of the halos. This indicates that instead of a dense region at the centre of the galaxy cluster, there's a much shallower central density, a striking signal of exotic forms of dark matter right at the heart of galaxy clusters. The wobbling also shows that the brightest cluster galaxies cannot coincide exactly with the cluster's halo, meaning that certain models of galaxy clusters will need to be adjusted. The authors are now planning to extend their search through the far larger survey of galaxy clusters offered by the Euclid Project. They hope this will allow them to confirm their findings, but also to determine if brightest cluster galaxy wobbling originates in new fundamental physics or a novel astrophysical phenomenon. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. Scientists have discovered the last major eruption of the Yellowstone supervolcano was a double-header event with two massive explosions spaced just 170 years apart. The findings are based on an analysis of volcanic ash which spewed from Yellowstone during the supereruptions some 630,000 years ago. It was these eruptions which formed the vast Yellowstone caldera seen today. The two layers of volcanic ash bearing the unique chemical fingerprint of Yellowstone's most recent supereruption were found in seafloor sediments in the Santa Barbara Basin off the coast of Southern California. These layers of ash or tephra are sandwiched among sediments that contain a remarkably detailed record of ocean and climate change. Together, the ash and sediments revealed that the last eruption was not a single event. Instead, it was two closely spaced eruptions which collectively tapped the brakes on a natural global warming trend that would eventually lead the planet out of a major ice age. University of California Santa Barbara geologist Jim Kennett and colleagues discovered the separate ash sedimentary signatures. Kennett's told the annual meeting of the Geological Society of America held in Seattle that the two separate super eruptions just 170 years apart each cooled the ocean by about 3 degrees Celsius achieving the degree of resolution needed to detect the separate eruptions and their climate effects, required several special conditions which were found in the Santa Barbara Basin. One is a steady supply of sediment into the basin from land, about a millimetre per year. Then there's the highly productive seas in the area, fed by upwelling nutrients from the deep ocean. This produced abundant tiny shells of foraminifera, which then sank to the seafloor where they were buried and preserved in the sediment. These shells contain temperature-dependent oxygen isotopes, which reveal the sea surface temperatures in which they lived. Finally, oxygen levels on the seafloor of the basin are sufficiently low so as to discourage burrowing marine animals, which would have mixed the sediments and degraded details of the climate record. It was this combination of events which allowed Kennett and colleagues to resolve the climate with decadal resolution. By comparing the volcanic ash record with the foraminifera climate record, it became clear that both these eruptions caused separate volcanic winters, during which the ash and volcanic sulfur dioxide emissions reduced the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth's surface, causing a temporary cooling. These cooling events occurred at an especially sensitive time for planet Earth, a time when the global climate was warming out of an ice age and was therefore easily disrupted by such events. Kennett and colleagues discovered that the onset of the global cooling events was abrupt, and they coincided precisely with the timing of the supervolcanic eruptions. However, Kennett also found that each of these super-eruption cooling events lasted longer than what it should have, according to basic climate models. Researchers saw enough overall planetary cooling of sufficient magnitude and duration that there must have been other feedbacks involved. Now, these feedbacks may have included things like increased reflectivity of sunlight off sea ice and snow cover, or possibly a change in ocean circulation, cooling the planet for longer. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the science report. New findings indicate European drought trends are lining up with climate change projections. The study, published in Scientific Reports, shows that two major drought indices are deviating from one another across Europe in a manner consistent with climate change simulations. The findings are another indication of the worsening impact of human-induced climate change caused by man's use of fossil fuels. Scientists say the only question now is exactly how much worse the impacts of climate change are going to get. The special patterns observed in the study match climate change projections for Europe that suggest decreases in drought frequency in the north and increased drought in the south. As temperatures increase across Europe, evapotranspiration, meaning what's leaving the ground and going back into the atmosphere, increases. Once you include evapotranspiration, the border from where it's getting wetter to where it's getting drier is pushing further and further north. And that means it's not just the Mediterranean that's getting drier. It's now pushing up into Germany and England. Many drought monitoring agencies use the indices to determine what constitutes drought. And insurance pilot programs are now beginning to consider using them to determine whether or not farmers are entitled to compensation if a drought affects their region. Paleontologists have discovered evidence of a huge carnivorous dinosaur that roamed southern Africa some 200 million years ago. What the scientists found was several three-toed footprints measuring some 57 centimeters long and some 50 centimeters wide. Now, this means that the dinosaur which made them would have had an estimated body length of around nine meters. That's 30 feet in old money. And it would have been around three meters high at the hip. Put that in perspective, that's about four times the size of an African lion, which is the largest carnivore in southern Africa today. The footprints belong to a new species named Cain tapis ambrocolohalli, which belong to a megatherapod group of giant two-legged carnivorous dinosaurs. The findings, reported in the journal PLOS One, also reveal that these footprints make up the largest theropod tracks in Africa. The tracks were found in Lesotho, on an ancient land surface, covered in 200 million-year-old current ripple marks and desiccation cracks, which are signs of a prehistoric watering hole or riverbank. What makes this discovery even more important is that these footprints all date back to the early Jurassic epoch, when it was thought the size of most theropod dinosaurs was considerably smaller. In fact, it was only much later in the Jurassic and, of course, during the Cretaceous period, starting around 145 million years ago, when truly large theropod dinosaurs, such as the iconic 12-meter-long Tyrannosaurus rex, began to appear in the fossil record. A major international study has pinpointed over 100 genetic risk factors that explain why some people suffer from asthma, hay fever and eczema. The findings reported in the journal Nature Genetics represents the first study specifically designed to find genetic risk factors that are shared among the three most common allergic conditions. To reach their findings, researchers analysed the genomes of 360,838 people. From this, they were able to pinpoint 136 separate positions in the human genome that are risk factors for developing asthma, hay fever and eczema. A new study warns that women who are underweight from any point in their teens onwards are some 30% more likely to experience early menopause compared to lean or normal weight women. The findings reported in the journal Nature Reproduction are based on a study of nearly 80,000 women. Early menopause is defined as naturally occurring menopause before the age of 45. It's been linked to a higher chance of other health conditions. The authors found that the number of women experiencing early menopause increased significantly as body mass index dropped below normal weight. Scientists have developed a small flexible patch capable of collecting and analyzing sweat straight from the skin. The patch developed by scientists at Northwestern University can measure the levels of chemical in the body including chloride, glucose and lactate. The soft skin-like device is comfortable to wear and doesn't cause irritation or lose adhesion. As soon as you start to sweat, the fluid moves into tiny channels and compartments in the patch where it interacts with different chemicals to change colour depending on what's in the sweat. Then the patch connects to your smartphone and an app tells you what the colours mean. Apart from the fitness industry, the patch could also be useful for screening diseases like cystic fibrosis. Researchers are hoping to release the device, initially for sports, within the next year or two. And finally for now, a new study has confirmed that fish really do have feelings. The findings, published in the journal Scientific Reports, show that fish have emotional states triggered by the way they perceive environmental stimuli. An emotional state is more than just a feeling. It's characterised by behavioural, psychologic, neurologic and genetic changes. Therefore, it's possible to run tests to infer if a response to a certain stimulus is associated with an emotional state. The tests were conducted with sea brim after the fish were first trained under favourable or adverse conditions which could trigger an emotional state. Contrary to what would be expected from a non-emotional response, researchers observed that the fish responded differently to the same stimulus depending on the way in which they were assessing the stimulus. The emotional reactions were monitored through the evaluation of interaction or escape behaviors among fish, measuring the levels of cortisol, a stress hormone, and assessing the brain areas that were activated and that are known to be associated with positive or negative emotional states. The study reveals that the ability to assess emotional stimuli may have a simpler neurological basis than what's expected to be conserved throughout animal evolution. It's the first time fish have been shown to have emotional responses to stimuli, meaning that this cognitive capacity may have evolved around 375 million years ago, far earlier than previously thought. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom from spacetimewithstuartgary.com or from your favorite podcast download provider. Spacetime's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C.